0: Hey guys, this is Charles, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening, for downloading, for sharing, and subscribing to this podcast. I am humbled and blessed by the reception to the podcast that I've received so far, and am floored that we have had listeners from the U.S., from Europe, and even from Africa. And look, my desire is not to be the podcast with the most listeners, but to be one of the many podcasts that God uses to encourage and to edify His people all over the world. And praise God, right? It is happening before my eyes. With that being said, I I wanted to let you know that some of the feedback I've received is that I need to have a way for listeners to submit questions and then periodically answer those questions throughout the podcast. So if you have questions about any of the topics or series covered on the podcast thus far or going forward, uh, you can uh, now send those questions to questions at org. At present, This podcast is a one-person show and I ask for your patience and your understanding, but I will do my best to respond and incorporate your questions into future episodes. Lastly, if you are being blessed by this podcast, I ask that you would pray that God would continue to use it for His glory and that you would share it with others you think would be blessed by it too. Hello, I'm Charles Wright, and welcome to the Complete in Christ podcast, where we endeavor to fit the pieces of our lives together according to the Word of God. We're continuing our study of the book of Colossians, asking the question, is Christ enough? The Colossian believers wanted more, Simply knowing Christ wasn't enough for them. They also wanted to know and experience so called deeper spiritual truths and power. They believed in Christ and the gospel, but still found themselves looking for more. They were caught in a crosswind of cultures and influences and had started to doubt whether Christ was truly enough to handle all the concerns of their lives. In today's episode, we're finishing up Colossians chapter 2, walking through verses 16 through 23 where Paul gives the Colossians some marching orders based on what he has shared so far. So let's get to it. In this final section of chapter two, uh, specifically verses 16 through 23, Paul is now putting forth his conclusion, his main point, based on everything that he's been talking about from verses one through 15. Again, we are keyed off to this being kind of his summary because of the fact that verse 16 starts with, therefore, indicating that at least in Paul's mind, he has presented his case. He's laid out his evidence in such a manner that it leads to a certain conclusion, that it necessitates a particular response. And I personally uh, really like this about Paul and about his writings. While some uh, of the theology can be deep and in some places, uh, we may have to kind of wrestle with Paul's theology and and what does he mean and what is he trying to convey. At the end of the day, Paul is still going to kind of put it in shoe leather for us. In other words, we don't have to uh, know with 100% certainty what Paul meant when he referred to the elemental spirits or the elemental principles in verse 8. In order to do what he is about to lay out in this section, he isn't leaving it up to us to determine the conclusion, the then of the if-then clause, so to speak. It isn't left up to our interpretation, our own sliding scale of what would be an appropriate response, but instead, after explicitly explaining the indicatives, he also explicitly explains the imperatives, the commands, the to-dos, the actions that should follow. And you may recall from an earlier episode of the podcast on genres in the Bible that presenting information in order to lead your audience to a certain decision is a standard feature in prose discourse, which is the literary genre that many of the New Testament letters fit into, and especially Paul's letters. So what is the conclusion then, right? Uh, Well, first, Paul says that because of everything that Christ has done, And everything that becomes available to the Colossians because they are in Christ, namely that they are rooted in him, that they are being built up in him, that their faith is being established in him, that they are complete in him, having been baptized with him and as a result raised up with him to new life and having been released from their debt of sin. Paul says that because of all of that, let no one pass judgment on you, Colossians, in regards to food or to drink or festivals or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, uh, what Paul has in view here is likely related to a group of folks um, called the Judaizers. And, And this group typically would come behind Paul. And after Paul had preached salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, they would add some addendums to that. Especially for the Gentile believers, and would teach that yes, they are saved by believing in Christ, but that salvation is still missing something. It's it's not made complete until they start maintaining the old T- old Testament kind of dietary and custom laws and ritualistic laws. It is always good to remind ourselves of the context, right? The Colossians are caught in a crosswinds of cultures and beliefs. It's causing them to doubt whether or not Christ is truly enough. And sometimes when we hear this, our tendency is to picture unbelievers causing this doubt, those who don't know Christ causing the Colossians to waver in their faith. But remember, this pressure was coming from outside of the faith community and also from inside the faith community. And if we reflect on all that Paul has discussed up to this point in his letter, we see right that chapter 1 focuses greatly on the supremacy of Christ, on who he is, in order to address those outside of the faith who would be maybe sowing seeds of doubt into the minds of the Colossian believers. And now in chapter 2, Paul spends time talking about how the Colossian believers are made complete in Christ, lacking nothing. Uh, And I believe this is to address the pressure coming from within the faith community. And don't miss how Paul places in juxtaposition the fact that no one can judge them for not keeping dietary and custom laws right next to him having just finished talking about how the Colossians' record of sin debt has been canceled, has been nailed to the cross. And I like what Paul then does in verse 17, because he doesn't just completely dismiss the Old Testament laws and practices, but he puts them in their proper context, meaning that they were a shadow of the things to come. And what actually is casting that shadow is Jesus Christ. Now, it is important for us to make a distinction. Notice that Paul is addressing dietary laws and decrees about holidays. He's not saying that the Ten Commandments, for instance, aren't in play anymore and should no longer be followed. But remember that the laws about diet and about the holidays were really focused more on clean versus unclean as it related to being able to enter into God's temple to worship Him. So Paul is not saying that because of Christ, the moral requirements of the Old Testament laws should not be followed. But what he is saying is that because of Christ, we no longer have to go through these symbolic, ritualistic actions to be able to enter into God's presence. Through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, we now have unfettered access to God in Christ. We stand before God now clean. In Christ, we no longer have the need to be made clean through dietary restrictions and festivals. And we have uh, modern-day Judaizers in the church today, and in some cases, they are very traditional meaning that they are following in the exact footsteps of these first century Judaizers, adopting and keeping and maintaining the Old Testament practices and rituals. And then in other cases, there are Judaizers uh, who are Judaizers in principle only, meaning that while they don't have an eye towards the Old Testament, they have tacked on other requirements to, um, quote unquote, complete one salvation in Christ. But the truth of the matter is that we all can actually fall into this trap, this notion that there is something that I am doing or that uh, I need to do that makes me right before God outside of just accepting what Christ has done on my behalf. It, it can be as extreme as following Old Testament ceremonial laws or as simple as volunteering at church, but anything that we are doing that we think adds to our righteousness falls into this category of false teaching that Paul is warning the Colossians about. If you're wondering how you view these things, um, you do in in the living of your own faith or the living out of your faith, here's a really simple test. When you think about whatever it is that you're doing, uh reading your Bible, going to Bible study, volunteering at church, whatever the case may be. And then you think about others who aren't doing that thing. Does a part of you feel like you are a better Christian than they are? If we're honest with ourselves, we all have done this and are doing this and probably will do this in the future. And when we find ourselves in those places, we would do well to pray and to ask the Holy Spirit to put to death the part of us that feels like we actually had a part in making ourselves right before God." Paul continues with other areas in which the Colossians were feeling pressure to add to their faith in Christ, when in verse 18 he mentions asceticism and angel worship. Now, asceticism or self-abasement in this context is referring to an extreme form of self-denial or severe treatment of the body, as we will see later on in verse 23. And the reference to angels in the original Greek, it's not exactly clear if this is literal worship of angels or it's angels in the act of worshiping. But based on the context, I believe, and, and some of the commentaries that I've looked at to uh, kind of sort this out seem to suggest as well and believe that what Paul has in view here is the idolatrous act of angel worship. But the fact that these two things are coupled together in Paul's flow of thought, the self-abasement, asceticism, and this worship of angels, it seems to indicate that these are related or linked. That whatever was going on in the contemporary context of the Colossian church, these two things were tied together. Meaning that there were some probably teaching that severe treatment of the body, for example, fasting enabled one to experience a deeper level of their faith and allowed them to see uh, visions of angels that um, they could then begin to worship. And the opening phrase of, of this particular verse, let no one disqualify you, or in some translations, let no one rob you of your prize, seems to suggest that these false teachers were saying, look, you think that you're complete in Christ, But there is a deeper level. There is a higher revelation that you can experience the greater things of God. See, you can have visions of angels and and peer into the very throne room of God if you would only do these other extreme things. This made me think of Elijah and the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18, when Elijah challenged them to have Baal Rain down fire on the altar and consume their sacrifice. It says that the prophets of Baal then began to cry out and cut themselves as was their custom. And so what we see, right, is, is this idea of doing these extreme things to their body to uh, get to uh, their God, so to speak, or to be able to experience or to make their God move on their behalf. And the problem is made obvious in verse 19 by Paul. These folks that are advocating for this self uh, abatement this uh, severe treatment of themselves, this asceticism in order that they may have visions and worship angels, they are not holding fast to the head of the church, which is Christ. This suggests that since they are not holding on to the Christ, that they are instead reaching for, holding on to, and looking for growth from something other than Christ. And this is a dangerous place to be. And I want to be so careful with this, but also so sincere when I say that as believers, we cannot look to anything other than Christ. We can't look to angels. We can't look to saints We can't look to ancestors or family members. We can't look to zodiac signs, to birthstones, to crystals, to rituals, to anything other than Christ to facilitate the spiritual growth, the spiritual protection and provision that is made available in Christ through the Holy Spirit alone. Finally, in verses 20 through 23, um, these are kind of sort of like uh, Paul's... Uh, summary statement of his whole argument, specifically that in Christ, the Colossians died to the old ways of thinking that governed the world. The idea that human precepts and reasoning and teaching would be able to devise how best to be right with God. Think about it like this. Before Google Maps and GPS, if you wanted to get to my house and you had never been there before and you didn't know anyone who had ever been there, you could obviously sit down and come up with some directions on your own and you could follow them to the letter and still not arrive at my house despite your best efforts and best intentions. But if I then gave you directions to my house, well, then you would be foolish, right, to continue to follow the directions that you came up with on your own uh, or even worse, try to blend and combine the directions that I gave you. Along with your directions, and expect to still get to my home. And I think this is a little bit kind of at the core of what Paul is saying that all of those other things were just shadows. They were just us trying to find our way to God's house, so to speak. But now God has given us clear directions in his son, Jesus Christ. So why, Colossians, are you still trying to do it the old way? And Paul. Does at least make a concession. He says, look, these uh, ways of thinking and reasoning on their surface, they appear to be wise. I mean, think about it. We are wired. If we see someone doing something physically extreme, we say, man, they really believe in whatever they believe in, or they really are faithful. But it is interesting that Paul introduces a litmus test at the end of verse 23. It's as if he says, look, you cannot touch certain things, not eat certain things, not drink certain things, not wear certain things. You can observe every holy day and festival. You can fast and treat your body severely, but none of that will keep you from indulging the desires of the flesh. In other words, after you've done all of that, you would still have a sin problem. And only Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection can break the power of sin over our lives. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Complete in Christ podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode or series, you can send them to questions at completeinchristpodcast.org. Please include your name, where you're from, and the specific episode you're referencing. Again, my name is Charles Wright, and until next time, be blessed.